Tennessee Valley. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison here with my co-host and fellow agitator Adam Keller and we are broadcasting live-ish online and on the radio uh, from the heart of the Tennessee Valley, the Spice Radio studio in Huntsville, Alabama. Today we are talking to William Attig, Executive Director of the Union Veterans Council. We'll talk, we are talking about teachers resigning and what it would take to keep them the priorities of conservative media weirdos, and more on today's Valley Labor Report. If you want to be part of the program, we've got a phone number, and uh, you can leave us a voicemail. We are pre-taping the program today, but you can always leave us a voicemail at our phone number, 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. You can leave a voicemail anytime throughout the week. If you haven't gotten enough of us by the time that we wrap on the radio, or if you just want to see what we're up to throughout the week, then you can find us online anywhere you find anything online, all at the Valley Labor Report. We broadcast on Facebook and YouTube. We upload the show as a podcast. We clip all of our segments on YouTube. We do it. We do everything. We even we even put up some of the segments as articles on our website, TVLR.FM. It's all at the Valley Labor Report. So look us up. Uh, reminder, your support helps us stay on the air. Our largest single source of funding comes directly from our listeners. So if you want to support the program, you can go to our website, tvlr.fm, where you can become a monthly donor or you can buy our new hat. You can buy our new hat on our website as well. So keep that in mind. And if you're a member of a union, uh, you should get your local to sponsor this show. You can reach out to me for more details on that. So uh, our first guest today is William Attig. He is the executive director of the Union Veterans Council. He is a union pipe fitter, uh, and he was arrested in Alabama for uh, for supporting the coal miners. So, Will, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. I appreciate it. Man, it's my honor to be here. I think that uh, one of the things that we really uh, undervalue in the labor community is our independent uh, podcasters and labor journalists that are just doing a yeoman's work all across the country telling this story of this uh, rejuvenated uh, labor movement um, all by themselves. And it's really cool to see. So I'm, I'm always happy to take an opportunity to, to sit on one of these podcasts and, and, and be part of this conversation. I, I appreciate it. Um, you know, I, I like to think that, that we do, uh, uh, that what we do matters at least a little bit, at least hopefully it's worth my time. Um, <laughs> and I listen to you. Uh, I listen to you all the time on uh, America's Workforce with um, uh, with Ed Flash Ference up in Ohio. I really enjoy 
that program. He puts that out as a podcast as well. I think, uh, you know, both of us are on the radio, but we both put it out as a podcast. And, and he does a really good show up there. So I, I always enjoy your segments on his show, too. So I appreciate that very much. And again, you know, watching what you've done to, to help support, you know, the Warrior Met uh, strike down there, that's kind of when I really got introduced to you. And, you know, it, it's been following ever since. So and just keep up the good work and finding those fights to get in. Like, that's the most important thing. It, it's easy to not turn down a fight, it, you know, but to find the right ones, get involved, it, it's always important to do it. So, Right, right. Especially, I mean, it, you know, they, they made it so easy putting two of the biggest uh, labor stories in the nation in my backyard with the Bessemer Amazon campaign and the coal miners strike. You know, I've got it easy. Uh, <laughs> you know, some of these folks from New York, New York got to drive halfway across the country to talk to these folks. And I can just like, you know, drive down the road a little bit and, and say hi to them. Uh, so, um, but you know, the, the, I wanted to talk to you about that, um, the, the, um, before we get into the union veterans council, um, although it's related, you came, you came down because of the union veterans council. Um, and the, uh, early in the strike, maybe about a month or a, a couple of months, a few months into it, um, the union decided to uh, that they were going to engage in civil disobedience, which is a time-honored American tradition. Um, and they, uh, you and ten other uh, UMWA and AFL-CIO elected leaders, sat in the road in front of the uh, in front of the entrance and did not allow scabs to come or go. Uh, you put your bodies on the line, and um, for that, you were arrested, spent the night in the Tuscaloosa County Jail. Um, and you were just telling us how fun that was. Um, <laughs> so what what was it that that uh, made this seem like a fight that you wanted to get involved in? And, uh, you know, like, why did you come down and do that as somebody who's, you know, not a coal miner, not from Alabama? Uh, you know, uh, this, you know, for, for a lot of people, they would just say, this isn't my fight. Why did you say that that this is your fight and, and I'm going to go to even even go to jail for it? Well, I mean, you know, I think this is a great place to kind of introduce myself just a little bit. I guess that makes sense. Um, I, I'm, a, I'm a poor kid from Southern Illinois. I like to say that, I'm a, you know, it, but it, it's really true. I was raised by a single mom. Um, I was raised in a coal field, coal area. Um, Southern Illinois used to be a very high production uh, coal area. Uh, we lost our mines, at least every single union mine, you know, in the late 80s, early 90s. And, and while I grew up, um, I saw how that completely decimated my decimated my com- my, com- my my entire community. I mean, entire community got decimated from that. And then we started seeing the manufacturing losses. Um, and by the time I was getting ready to graduate high school, I didn't really have any options in front of me. Um, I probably could have gone to college, but I might have struggled. Um, didn't really have the money for it, so I joined the army. And this was in 2003, and um, joined the military, served my served in the army um, as an infantryman. Um, did multiple deployments during Iraq and Afghanistan during that war um, and came home um, with all these medals, with all this respect that I gained. And I found myself a poor kid in Southern Illinois in a cold, with, without any coal jobs or any other jobs to find. Um, and I struggled really, really, really bad. Um, I, I'll tell you what, you know, I, I thought the hardest fight I was ever going to fight was going to be, you know, in Iraq and the streets of Ramadi. Um, but reality of it, the streets of Southern Illinois during the Great Recession was the hardest fight I ever faced. And within a year, I found myself without a job, a degree or a future. And, and you know, it, it was I found myself finally getting turned down for jobs. I didn't have a college degree, but I led soldiers in combat and at, at 
there happening you know, back when we were home. Um, and then one day I found a union training program and someone told me about it and um, told me about helmets of hard hats and I became a union pipe fitter. I went through a welding program. My life got changed and I dedicated my life that day to help other veterans get jobs in unions. And um, what I really realized was that my community is someone to fight for them. Um, I was able to start using my voice to support my overall veterans community and then also help the labor community. And that led me to be, you know, lucky to come here to DC. But, and, and I'll fast forward to, to why I decided to go down to Alabama is um, I've always fought for my community. Um, when I left for the military, I truly believed I was fighting for the ideas of our country, the idea of the American dream, um, the idea of freedom and democracy and all those good things that we get taught when we're kids in small towns all across the country. Um, but what I found is that the work I do today is way more beneficial than any fight I ever fought in the Middle East. Um, yeah, being able to stand up for federal workers during a government shutdown a few years ago and getting arrested for that. Um, you know, I was standing up for, you know, almost a million workers, um, which I was very lucky that my organization could do. So when I saw um, workers organizing um, and trying to fight back, fight for their community in Alabama, I, I decided that was going to be a fight I wanted to get into because we don't usually see those kind of fights in those communities and from those demographics and those, those kind of jobs right now. So I thought it was a great opportunity to go down there. Um, Cecil Roberts is kind of like a, a father figure to me uh, in labor. He's a mentor. He's a Vietnam veteran. He's got the same medals I do, um, but we just were just a generation apart. Um, and he called me up and asked me about, you know, talking about coming down just for the rally. And he told me about the arrest. And, you know, he told me uh, that he didn't know how it was going to go. And, and for the first time, I've been arrested, you know, one other time, but it was kind of more of a scripted kind of thing. You knew what was going to happen. You were going to spend so much time. He said, we don't know. And um, I was really blessed. We flew into walk from Washington, D.C., and, you know, from, from the minute I got on the ground, I just felt an energy coming from those mine workers. Um, and, you know, as we prepared to kind of walk on that mine, it was one of the most powerful moments I felt. And it was just young Americans and older Americans um, feeling, you know, solidarity and power for the first time. People who've been beat down and trodden, you know, communities have been devastated by corporations and trade deals. And I just felt people willing to fight. And I, and I was like, this is someplace I want to be at. And, and, you know, that started a really fun day, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That's, you know, I have, um, I, I have so much appreciated seeing people, you know, from across the country, like yourself, um, people like Kim Kelly coming down and really attaching themselves to this fight. And, and even the folks who haven't, you know, spent, month after month, you know, the people that have at least, you know, done something, right? Because there are so many people that constantly, constantly talk about, you know, the blue collar worker or the normal working person, coal miners, factory workers, bad trade deals. And and they have been completely completely silent they haven't even offered any words on this you know i mean our our senator uh tommy tuberville when he had the chance in front of uh you know god and the rest of the country to condemn uh you know international private equity firms from stealing a alabama community blind he just read from their press release i mean that's yeah. you know so 
I, I I really appreciate folks, you know, folks like you that that you've obviously got a connection to 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 this kind of fight. But you know, uh, you're not from Alabama. Uh, you're you know, um, and and so I, I do appreciate. I mean, but, but think about what was happening, you know. I mean, and just when you take a second, I mean, I know we probably talked about it a ton on your show, but maybe not in the way I, I look at it, it is, is that this company had, had not only came in and devastated this community, you know, it literally was stealing the American dream from these workers. And and, and I remember when we started marching, we didn't really have, we didn't know exactly where we were going to go. And we started marching that, you know, as we got close to that mine out, there was so much energy in those workers. I didn't know if we could stop, you know, and, but I was really proud. We got on the line, um, you know, and again, that's what I told those police officers when they were putting me in the, in the wagon finally is that, you know, why I was doing this is that I saw a community willing to fight for themselves. Mm-hmm. That's what I do. And I'm going to come fight with them. And, and, and again, it's not just me, right? I, I'm, I'm so blessed to have an organization behind me that allows me to do this work and a board that trusts me and a federation that backs me up and allows me to get out in front of some of these things often. But the reality of it, like, you know, how awesome of a job is it is to just go and get arrested and fight for workers across the country. It's a, it, 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 it's, a, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an honor, but, you know, to me, you know, we spent 12 hours in jail all together. And like, what is that? What 12 hours of me not watching YouTube or, mm-hmm. or playing some video games at night, right? Like compared to, or sleeping in my bed while this entire community's lost over a billion dollars, stores have shut down, schools yeah. have lost money. The community has lost money. Like, what kind of like? Yeah, who cares about sitting in a nasty jail cell with a whole bunch of other people? You know, for twelve hours. Like, that's mm-hmm. nothing, man. That is nothing. I, I'm I'm here to do that every day if I could. I'm on six month probation right now down there, so I can't do it for another like month or two. So <laughs> we'll yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, the you, you mentioned you know having a job that that kind of allowed you to to do stuff like that, and and I am in a situation. I am a federal employee, and and so I um I asked my um. I, I asked my union officers, I was like, if I got arrested for doing that, would I like lose my job? And they were like, oh, yeah, yeah, you can't do that. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, you know, I guess I, I could, but uh, I wouldn't have a job anymore and that would be an issue. So. <laughs> yeah, you want to you want to I think you get to pick and choose your battles here, you know, you know, pick and choose your battle. I'm sure there'll be one for you to get into, you know, sooner or later. And hopefully I'll be sitting right there next year when it happens. There so. you go. There, well, so you're you know, you're a veteran and, and and, you know, there's there's a definitely a lot in in the veteran community. I feel like there there's a lot of respect for the rule of law and you know we're we're a nation of laws and law and order and and stuff and 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 you know this is this is like an important thing and um what would you say to maybe other veterans who would say that you broke the law and and breaking the law is breaking the law and that's just not right um you know you're you're you were violating the rights of the scabs to come in and out of the mine. You were violating the rights of the people in New York to make money. Like that makes you a bad person. What, how do you respond to, I have responses to that, but how would you respond to that? You know, I get asked that quite a bit. Right. And and I think that even the, those workers down there that I talked to, some of them probably had different views of getting in protest six months before they got into their protests and mm. their strikes. Right. Um, you know, this country is made, made, it's made from fighting and fighting for each other. The reality of it. There's this version of America that's been being told since the 50s 
um, that all for one individualism, mm. um, patriotism is wearing a cut off pair of American flag shorts to the lake on the weekend. That's a bunch of nonsense. You know, America is about getting out and doing that stuff together. We're, we're not a perfect country. We've got tons of stuff in our past. We need to learn about it a little bit better. We need to recognize it. But the reality that every generation we've moved this country forward incrementally, right? Um, I look at my my country, you know, my my community from 20 years ago. Uh, the rules that just affect how you can serve your country. If you're willing to go die for your country, right? Like you can go do that now if you love somebody that that may not fit some, you know, outdated view of what marriage is, right? Mm. Um, we've moved forward. So what I tell people is that yeah, I, I break the law. Um, I do, and I'm proud to do it because if I can use that action, right, and I and I, I will always pay the consequence for it. I'm, that's, I don't, it's not like I'm going to try and run out of it. It's not like when you get pulled over for speeding and trying to talk your way out of it, I'm happy to put those cuffs on because at that moment, I get to force multiply that rage and energy I have inside and hopefully spread that to other veterans and other union members to be able to do the same thing. Because if we have enough people sitting down, we don't need to have people, you know, doing really crazy stuff. If we have enough people um, getting out in the streets, right? Now, you know, how many corporate lawyers can they can they hire? Mm. You know, so to me, it, if I get an opportunity to, to lead from the front, um, you know, just in a moment, um, just like I did when I was kicking doors in Iraq sometimes, it's what I want to do because I want people to be able to know they can follow, they can do the same thing. So yeah, I, I break the law for it. But I also do it to fight for my country and fight for my community and fight for workers. Um, and there's a lot of people who talk about workers, like you said, um, there's not a lot of people fighting for them in this country. And I'm lucky that the labor movement is one of those places that truly are. Yeah, yeah. Well, so let's um, let, let's go ahead and talk about the the Union Veterans Council. Then the Union Veterans Council got a got a designation last week uh it, it was it was designated as a constituency group of the afl cio um uh, so talk to us about what the the union veterans council what it is what it does and and then what does it being a constituency group of the afl cio as opposed to maybe some like an a more ad hoc organization what does that change no, definitely. So um, first and foremost, uh, people don't realize there's a really big connection between veterans and labor. Um, it goes all the way back to some of the very first labor unions being created in America. Um, you can go back to the cement masons and plasters, um, some of the other major unions that formed after the Civil War. And what happened was we had, you know, back in the Civil War, you would, the entire community would go to fight the war. And most of them worked in factories, inner cities, so the Bronx Brigade, you know, the Baltimore, the other units. Um, after the Civil War happened, they went off and fought for our country and fought for the ideas that we had put into that piece of paper a few hundred years before or whenever. Um, and, you know, they came home, they realized that they were being treated, you know, completely poor, you know, poorly, right? They were going back to the same bosses. They were going back to the same working conditions, safety um, issues. Um, and more so, there were some of those groups that are now on the low, found themselves that they used to be sergeants and captains. And um, they found that they were able to lead soldiers in combat um, and they began to actually organize some of the first, you know, some of those first unions got created from, and and we can look at that every war following is that we saw this increase in union density and groups using that, you know, that in the military status as a way to get ahead. World War One, World War Two, 
Um, and then, you know, uniquely, you know, wars kind of change from those big conflicts to things like Vietnam, where, you know, now we're fighting in a war that, you know, doesn't have the backing of the people and doesn't have the, the moral compass that we might, might all want to have. So when those veterans came home, um, corporate America turned their backs on these veterans. And so many of them were coal miners. I was real lucky to work with a bunch of them fighting for their pensions um, a few years ago. Um, and these were the Vietnam veterans that their country turned their backs on. They didn't, they didn't make the orders up to send them over there. They got drafted, you know. Corporate America turned their backs on Vietnam, but unions in it. Unions like the UAW, the UMWA, um, many unions, the building trades, they put programs to hire those Vietnam veterans in place. And the same thing happened when I went to war. Those Vietnam veterans are now union presidents, and they started to work to put programs together. So there's this big history of it. Um, I, um, in some states right now, um, there's a 20, over a 25% union density in the veterans population. And think about that. Um, the national average for veterans, we're at 15% union density in our community of workers, um, which is a third higher than the national average. Um, and why is that? Veterans seek stability. They, they seek good jobs when they come home and they find them where they in labor. And a lot of us come from labor backgrounds. I didn't, but many veterans come from those kind of blue collar communities. So um, the Union Veterans Council was created in 2009, but the idea came about in 2004 when we saw John Kerry being having his military record blasted by lies. Uh, corporate right wing folks, media folks, I heard you're going to talk about them. Well, they were they had a lot to do with that. Um, but we had um, veterans from Ohio that were IBW members around boat with John Kerry. Um, and that was the first initial wave in 2009. It was created um, to become a constituency group, but we always remain kind of a, a project status inside the AFL-CIO. Um, today, there's over 1.3 million working union veterans across the country. And, and when you think about it, there's only seven and a half million working veterans across the country. There's only 12 million union members. That's a pretty big chunk. Um, and we're a, a diverse group. Um, there's veterans from every demographic, every corner of the country that are union members. And that's one of the things I'm the most proud of is that, that and that's probably why I get in so many fights with the organization is that when there's an issue that faces our community, it faces the veterans community, whether it's um, you know the, the Black Lives Matter uh, protests that we were very, very a big part of that, you know, working to uh, federal workers. There's all these things that are connected with the veterans and. What the Union Veterans Council has really started to build itself uh, as is, the, is a centralized advocacy organization that focuses on uh, membership engagement, uh, community outreach, um, legislation and policy, and then political and action campaigns um, for the labor movement, um, but through the veterans lens. Um, and, it, it, it's a, it, and, it's, and again, we've been growing a little bit, so that kind of led us to last week. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, so t you, last week, y'all became a constituency group. So what what does that mean? Yeah. So I, I, it means that we're independent now. So um, constituency groups of the AFLC are something that not everybody knows about. Um, and again, that's why these podcasts are so great. And you get to talk about all these cool tools and organizations we have in the labor movement to actually, you know, move veterans or move uh, uh, members forward. So Constituency groups are, are, are community-based groups uh, for, for different communities inside of the labor movement, um, whether it's uh, uh, women, women, uh, women trade unionists, um, CBTU Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, Pride at Work, who we do a lot of work with um, for the LGBTQ plus community, and another handful, but we represent, we're not unions, uh, we're advocacy organizations, but we, we advocate for those unique communities inside of our, in, inside of the membership. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, the um, I I've definitely heard of you know the Coalition of Black Trade Unionists, Pride at Work, 
uh, the, those are A. Philip Randolph Institute is another one. Yeah. I think there were seven, um, but those are the ones. There's seven all together now. Yeah, we've got um, uh, yeah Apollo, which is the Asian Pacific American, um, LACA, or I'm going to start double tap A. Philip Randolph, um, CBTU, Clue, um, and, and us, and, and Private Work. So it's a it's a good group of folks, and and you know it's one of those things that I think that you're going to see as we get more into this new wave of unionism that those community groups are going to be front and center because what they have are the story. They have them, these individual stories from all these members that they're unique to them. Um, just mm. like the veterans we have it. Um, and those stories are what's going to move this needle. I think on, on union density and union movement is that the stories of the workers, the stories of those communities and how being a union member is, is, is a good thing, not a bad thing. That's what's going to help this so much. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that, you know, I think that testimony is a very powerful thing. And, you know, speaking of speaking of that, you know, you, you, you talked about earlier how being in a union, um, joining the, the pipe fitters really, really helped you. Can you talk about can you talk some about that that helmets to hard hats program that helps brings veterans i know that i i I don't think that you're specifically involved in that but that is a uh a program by the pipe fitters union that helps transition veterans into the workforce and there there are programs like this all across the labor movement particularly in the trade unions but i I, i'm sure in others as well that talk about that that help veterans transition into the workforce that don't you know just just kind of leave them hanging or you know force them into a low wage no protection no benefit kind of job these these are real good union jobs and they provide a pathway into you know normal life for veterans can you talk some about those types of programs and and what the union veterans council is doing to support them yeah, that first of all, if you're a veteran listening to this um, podcast or you know a veteran that's struggling, right? Someone who needs a, a, maybe a fresh look, been on the couch one too many years after a deployment, um, you can go to Union Veterans Council, um, look at our workforce, the workforce uh, you know, hub. There's all kinds of links to these different programs. You can look up helmets of hard hats. So, so you're right. Um, yeah, in 2008, um, many of the unions realized a couple of things. One, we needed um, we needed to start preloading for the grain of the economy or the grain of the workforce. And then we also had all these veterans coming home. And I think in 2009, my my age group of veterans had like a 19% unemployment rate. Um, and it was just coming back to a saturated job market during the recession. It was really bad. And they started working on two different programs, the VIP program, Veterans and Piping, which is the UA program, and then Helmets the Hard Hats, which is uh, through uh, the National uh, Billing Trades. Um, and they're both kind of unique. So the first one I always talk about is Helmets of Hard Hats, because that's how I'm sitting in this chair. Um, I went to a Helmets, I graduated Helmets of Hard Hats welding class. But what Helmets of Hard Hats is they don't so much do the training, um, but they're a connector. Mm. Think about like monster.com, right? If you're a veteran and you want a union job in the trades, if you sign up to that website, they can find you one. Maybe it's not exactly in your backyard, um, but if you can meet the qualifications, you can get a union job in the trades across the country right now. Um, you know, it might just take you a couple months, but it can happen. Uh, maybe you're moving to Pittsburgh to build all that new infrastructure that's happening right there. Maybe you're going out to uh, California to refit um, all these new water pipes for desalinization. Maybe you're going to, um, you know, one of the ports in uh, Alabama or Mississippi to build boats or, you know, there's there's all kinds of jobs there. So what we did was we worked one, but first of all, work on our veterans, but then you have these other programs that 
are called skill bridge programs. And what they do is before you leave the military, most difficult time for veterans is that first six months to a year when they separate from the military. And it, they really start to struggle there. And what we do is we work to get a hold of them early on before they leave the military, start to train them. And many times uh, these veterans leave the military on Friday and they can start a job on Monday. Um, with programs like VIP, it's guaranteed placement. And you're talking about a job that's life-changing, you know, full benefits, making more than you did when you were in the military as a, as a, as a first year or second year apprentice. It's pretty amazing. Um, it, it changed my life. I mean, it, it, I, when I say it saved my life, it really did. Um, I, I was really struggling at the time and knowing that I didn't have to worry about my bills being paid or knowing that um, I was always going to have this opportunity as long as I didn't mess up. Um, it really helped me, you know, finally really come home after, you know, a lot of, you know, hard times as a young man uh, in a combat zone. Yeah. It, that is, you know, I mean, you know, coming home from, from something like that, I just, I couldn't imagine it, honestly, you know, it's, uh, I, I really, really couldn't. And there, you know, I mean, we made folks do that. And, and the, the, the ability of our country to just leave people that, that went overseas and put their life on the line, um, just leave them out to dry is astounding to me. And, and, there here again, unlike so many people who talk about the issue all the time, uh, you know, the Union Veterans Council, helmets to hard hats, veterans in piping. These people are actually doing something about it and and actually going out and and actually doing something to help veterans um, and 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 doing it and, and really changing their life. I mean, you know, getting a good job, getting a real good job with good benefits, a pension, you know, I mean, this is something that, that like nobody has anymore. Um, and, and so to be able to connect veterans to that kind of thing is, is, is really something special, I think. You know, and, and they succeed. It, mm-hmm. It's really cool to watch them succeed. And, and I think that's the most important thing. And then, you know, what's really cool. So, so I work directly with all those programs as kind of the assist. Um, I, I work uh, with legislative work here in Washington, D.C. Uh, we do a lot of work uh, with members of Congress. We've got a real big project with the White House right now. Um, the, the little program that we took over that I, that I was uh, you know, given the responsibility to, to, to be able to, to help lead uh, five years ago, almost to the day. Um, when I when I took over, uh, I was given a job to put like a five year, a five year a, a plan together. And I put a six year plan together which people usually don't see in D.C. because they're too concerned about elections. And I said, I'm building a labor program, not an election program. Mm. And that means that i got to work on a lot of things. And one of the first things I did was start to get out in the world. And everywhere I went, I found union veterans that were already engaged, um, that were already uh, part of the um, or, you know, part of the labor community. And what I've been able to do is help build chapters, um, help uh, organize those veterans who use their voice through some of our different programs. And now we see those same veterans that have made it through over the last 10 years now becoming leaders, either um, at their local unions, on the job site, doing political work, um, running for office. We mm-hmm. have a ton of union veteran candidates that are running this year. It's amazing to see. You know, last year was a big test for the union veteran. And we unions in around around the around America where, you know, during during the election cycle from start to finish, Donald Trump lost 14 percent in the veterans community and it was the most uh uh divided veterans uh vote in, in i think i think in our either in our history or in the last 20 years um and losing 14 points in a demographic like this is pretty is is, is, is not a good thing because mm. we vote 
And, you know, those numbers were able to offset many of the different places Trump made gains. And what it showed was that, you know, veterans actually care about this country and we care about the things we say, even though there's not all of us. I mean, we're never going to say there's more of us than them, you know, because, you know, we know where we come from. We know some of the, you know, what historically draws people to the military. But, you know, I know everyone always says, well, man, you must have been the only Democrat. And I said, that's 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 nonsense, because um, there's a lot of folks that are in the military for a lot of reasons. And mm-hmm. we're not just some isolated group. And last year really showed that. So we see veterans stepping up across the country. And, and I'm really excited to see these new ones running for local city council, um, member, you know, state houses, things like that, Congress. Um, and I, I think that you're going to hear a lot more about that from us this year later on. Awesome. Well, I look forward to it. Maybe we can get a Maybe we can get Bob to run for city council. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, Will, thank you so much for your time. I, I really appreciate it. I look forward to uh, to getting that report from you and for um, uh, to hearing more from you in the future. Uh, yeah, I, I really truly appreciate it. And anytime, uh, anytime you're on a veteran show or myself, I'm, I'm happy. I, I want to always end with one thing if I can. If sure. You yeah. One more minute. That, um, I get thanked for my service a lot, and I spend a lot of time fighting for this country, um, fight for the ideas I believe in, but. The reality of it is that people go to work every single day to fight for this country, whether you're a school teacher or a nurse or a truck driver delivering food or, you know, an AFG worker making sure that the VAs run correctly. So for me, you know, it's always my honor to, to you know, when everyone gets done talking about me being a veteran is to, to thank everybody else who's making the wheels turn in this great country, um, fighting for the for the for the people who run who, who need it. Um, Thank you for your service every day. It really means a lot to me as a veteran to be able to say that. Will, thank you so much for for your words and for your time this evening with us. Uh, I really appreciate it, and I hope that somebody out there listening uh, just found a resource that they maybe didn't even know that they needed, hmm. but they really needed. And uh, so, thanks for all that you're doing for union members and for our future union members. And look forward to having you on again for sure. Yeah, I really appreciate it. All right, folks. So we've been talking to William Attig. He is the executive director of the Union Veterans Council. They just became a constituency group of the AFL-CIO, talking about uh, veterans in the labor movement, how you can get connected. Uh, Go to their website. If you're a veteran in the area, you're looking for a job, or if you're not in the area, if you're anywhere, you can go to their website and follow some of their links to get connected with a uh, Helmets to Hard Hats, a uh, you know Veterans in Piping, one of these resources for veterans that are looking for looking to transition into the workforce and looking to transition into a good job, into a real job with benefits, with a retirement where you can work and live with dignity. Um, so so uh, take a look at that and uh, and and let us know what you think. Phone number is eight four four eight nine nine TVLR. We are going to be right back. We're going to be talking some about uh, we're going to be talking about last week in Southern Labor, about some priorities of conservative weirdos and more on the other side of this break. So stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. 
Support for this program also comes from the Ironworkers, Local 477. So if you are looking for contractors with lower-than-average EMR and TRIR, uh, they tell me that if you need to know what those mean, then you will. Uh, Or if you need to supplement a workforce at any level for any amount of time, short or long-term, if you need ironworkers that come trained and certified at no extra cost, or if you need workers from superintendent down to general laborer and you're looking to start work on a project or you're unhappy with your current contractor situation, you need to call my friend Jeb Miles with the Ironworkers Local 477. They only work with the best in the business, vetted contractors, and can do all kinds of jobs from roofing to steel and bridge erection, from welding to heavy rigging, from structural repairs to machinery alignment, and much more. They supply manpower on four of the five largest projects in North Alabama, so you know they're legit. If you need good quality, safe, efficient, diligent, and knowledgeable workers on your job, then you need the Ironworkers Local 477. Call Jeb Miles at 256-383-3334 or via email at local477 at bellsouth.net and make sure you tell them that you heard about them on the Valley Labor Report. IBW558 is like a great football team. You've got to have the aptitude, skills, and knowledge to outperform the competition. If you're a non-union electrician, now is the perfect time to get off the sideline and join our team. We have the absolute best wages and benefit package in North Alabama and Southern Tennessee. It's because our team stands together, bargains together, and our families benefit from it. With immediate openings, you have the opportunity to see why the IBW is the right choice. Energy Alabama is a locally operated and membership-based nonprofit organization focused on advancing Alabama's clean energy future through education and advocacy. Many people in charge of infrastructure and building decisions simply don't know how viable clean and renewable energy is, and to that end, Energy Alabama has provided instruction to thousands of adults and tens of thousands of K-12 students across the state, and they are working hard to build careers in clean energy and help everyday Alabamians save money on their utility bills. Learn more about their work and how you can join at energyalabama.org. Support for the Valley Labor Report comes from the International Federation of Professional and Technical Engineers Union. Learn more by visiting www.ifpte.org. The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855-617-9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855-617-9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. 
Support for this program comes from the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 136, out of Central Alabama. Learn more at IBEW136.org. creates all wealth all wealth should go to labor you are listening to the valley labor report my name is jacob morrison and my co-host is adam keller if you've got anything to add give us a call the phone number is 844-899-TVLR 844-899-8857 we just finished up a conversation with william adig he is the executive director of the union veterans council if you missed any part of that interview you can find it on our youtube channel the valley labor report on youtube.com or on our podcast wherever you get your podcast it's on like 11 different podcast podcasting apps uh you know there are some of them that we put it on that i've never heard of but people listen to us on these podcasting apps that i've never heard of before and you can be one of those you could be one of those people and give us a uh, five stars give, give us, us a, give stars. us a review whatever we got to do yeah. to to trick the algorithm so that we're out there for folks and yeah it really helps it makes a difference pod kicker pod kicker is one of the podcasts oh wow apps that people listen to us on it's like it's like i had no idea 20 downloads a month or so, or, or a week or something it's like you know, there's some people out there listening to us on Podkicker. To our uh, Podkicker comrades, thank yeah. you for your support. <laughs> if you listen to us on Pod Podkicker, let us know. Tweet at us at Labor Reporters. There are people that listen to us on Podbean, on Castbox. Uh, man, it's all yeah. Let us know if I'm you, still on Spotify myself. Uh, on Spotify. Even though I, you know, I, I love my man Neil Young. Uh, I haven't quit Spotify yet. Yeah, but I am missing Neil Young on there. Yeah, I have to say, but I'm glad to still see the Valley Labor Report That's there. That's right. With five stars, by the That's way. That's right. That's right. That's right. So um, let's talk about back from break. I, I want to talk really quickly about uh, about priorities because I, I think that the 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 priorities of a political figure, of a pundit, of a politician, they tell us a lot about their politics. What effect are they going to have on the world? That's going to be determined by their priorities, much less than by their answers to a survey, right? Actions speak louder than words. And for pundits, your words are your actions, right? You know, so if I, if this was my job as an, if my, if, if the, the majority of the time that I spent trying to have an impact on the world, which thankfully it's not this, but if that if that was the case, if the majority of the time that I, tr- I I spent trying to have an impact on the world was me, like you know, talking out my ass on a microphone, then my words would be my actions, right? Because theoretically, doing this kind of thing, what we're doing right now, is is supposed to educate people and and get them to think about the world in a different way and get them to to change the world. In, you know, that's that's theoretically what we're supposed to be. You know, obviously it's for it's for entertainment and it's for you to have something on in the background while you wash your dishes. Like these are all very important things. But at at the highest level, you know, I think that people who 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 get into political 
talking, we want to change the world, right? We want to change the world. So, for example, you could say that you're pro-choice, as some conservative talk radio hosts in North Alabama do. Actually, there are legitimately conservative talk radio hosts in North Alabama that say they are pro-choice. You could say that Warrior Met is giving Alabama coal miners a raw deal. Again, as some conservative talk radio hosts in North Alabama do, or at least have at one time on one show once. But if you never make a positive argument for women's bodily autonomy and instead spend all of your time talking about how the radical left is trying to uh, push abortion too much, or you spend all of your time pushing uh, uh, pushing politicians that are actively trying to reject the idea of women's bodily autonomy, you are I do not view you as pro-choice. Like that's just. And and I have friends that are pro-life. I'm not saying that it makes like that you should go to hell for being pro-life or, or, or anti-choice. I'm not saying that necessarily. I'm just saying that's not you're not really pro-choice if the effect that you have on the world is not pro-choice. You could even theoretically actually be a conservative pro pro-choice person, but you should be making these arguments from a conservative point of view but but these people don't do that they say it in passing and then they go on to attack abortion you could uh uh but and and on the same token if you never make a positive argument in support of the coal miners if you never actually challenge people with power on issues of material relevance in the lives of working people. I mean, these people, they spend hours, they spend hours every day talking to the most powerful people in Alabama. I mean, my God, like that's, you know, I mean, look, kudos to them. They have, these people have created a sort of power for themselves. And, uh, you know, if you never ask these people about issues of material relevance, to the lives of working people. If you have not, over the course of the last year, right, we are coming up on, these coal miners have been on strike for a whole year, come April the 1st, in like a few days after you hear this. Uh, there are people on the radio that talk to uh, gubernatorial candidates that have talked to the sitting governor that have talked to people in law enforcement, all of these people that have power to do something about this strike, and they have never asked them about it. They've never asked them about it. So does it actually matter when you say, when pushed against a wall in a conversation that you support the coal miners, quote-unquote, whatever the hell that means. I would argue that it doesn't, in the same way that if you spend all of your time attacking abortion, you're not pro-choice, okay? So, especially, like in the other argument, when the entirety of your body of work supports people that not only have opposing views to you on these issues, but their opposition to those issues are priorities for them. It is a priority for Alabama politicians to protect the boss at every opportunity. And that includes the Warrior Met 
private equity fund managers in New York and Australia. It's a priority for them because they're not doing anything about it. That's why every now and then when I see a conservative propagandist say something stupid, I will juxtapose it with real issues, and particularly over the past year, one of those real issues has been the coal miner strike. I don't do it all the time, but it's not something that I do irregularly, right? Okay, I'm not afraid to admit that. I, I often do this. I often, say, when somebody says something about how it is a serious issue for the West, it's a serious issue for the West, that Minnie Mouse for one month in one location halfway across the world is wearing a pantsuit. Oh, no. <laughs> when, you know, look, I mean, if somebody says something so as as ridiculous as that i will occasionally juxtapose that with the fact that they have never said anything about the coal miner strike i will do that because i think it's relevant i think it's relevant and i did that last week with a wvnn radio host and policy director of the Koch brother funded alabama policy institute phil williams because he decided to derail a conversation about medicaid expansion because the reporter used some words that hurt his feelings. Okay? So what was the policy? What was the policy that was being discussed? It was extending postpartum Medicaid coverage to a full year. I think that's very important. Maternal mortality in Alabama is uh, among the highest in the country. And, and so I think it's important to expand postpartum Medicaid coverage. It's important because also, as Reckon reports... One-third of pregnancy-related deaths happen between one week and one year postpartum, where Alabama only covered two months before. Now they now uh, we're looking at covering a year. I don't think it's a done deal, but it's moving in that direction. This is going to make a huge difference in Alabama, where an astonishing, I could not believe this when I read it, an astonishing 50%, one out of every two babies that are born in Alabama, their mothers are covered by Medicaid. That's a lot of people. That's a lot of people. And that could not have happened without the tireless efforts of folks like Jane Adams and others at Alabama Arise and their allies pushing for the expansion of Medicaid and having this on the table as an option when the funds became available. So, what exactly did Phil Williams get his panties in a wad about? That kicked off him getting his panties in a wad about this kicked off a good week. A week! Uh, in a world where we're like, we're looking, we're at war! The world is at war right now! And for a good week in the Alabama conservative media, they spent squealing about this. Hours of time on talk radio across the state. Opinion columns. What was it? about the revelation, the revelation that there are going to be fewer postpartum deaths in Alabama that made him so mad. Was it that it's taken so long to get this done? Was he mad, perhaps, that people on his team, quote-unquote, spent so long fighting Medicaid expansion, and as a result, people died needlessly? Is that what he got mad about? Hell, was he even mad about the policy because maybe there's something that I'm missing? Maybe there's something that I'm missing, and it's not actually going to save lives. Uh, maybe there are things that we could be doing instead of this 
I would even give him that. I would even give him that, that, that there's an argument, you know, let's just say hypothetically. It would be wrong, but is that what he got mad about? No. No. He was upset, and all the other losers in the conservative media in Alabama were upset because the reporter uses the phrase birthing people to describe people who would benefit. He hijacked reporting on something that will actually benefit one out of every two people who give birth in Alabama to cry about the words that were being used. <laughs> I mean, good, good God, man. I mean, this is just, this is bonkers, right? This is crazy. This is crazy. And so, and so you know, look, I mean, look, birthing people to me, I mean, look, I don't know. It sounds weird. It sounds weird. It, it, it strikes my ears wrong. I don't say that. I don't know if anybody is, like, clamoring for it. Um, I don't know that anybody cares. And his argument was, that right, that the reporter was all virtue signaling or whatever. And, and you know, like, I don't know what. Maybe she was. Maybe she but Who cares? Like, who gives a damn? I mean, signaling to who? Yeah. Um, like, I don't know. I, I'll just say, I'll chime in here to say I'm not familiar with that phrase. I'm not sure where it came from. Uh, you know, maybe that's my own ignorance. Uh, I'm just a just a dude yeah. uh, who doesn't know about giving birth. Uh, I am a father. <laughs> uh, I've witnessed it. I mean, but so the- um, you know, if that's the phrase that's used, I don't really care. It doesn't yeah. bother me. It doesn't offend know. me. It doesn't. Uh, maybe it's just, maybe it's because we're not snowflakes. Maybe. We I guess so. I mean, you know, it, it, the juxtaposition between hmm, we can save people's lives, <laughs> mothers, <laughs> by the way, in a family value state, we could save the lives of mothers who are having children, children they had to have because they can't have an abortion in this state. Um, yeah, I don't, but we could talk about that or we could talk about two words and a story that I'm okay. the, the argument that. Like the reason that they said that they said this word, the reporter said that, you know, because not everybody who gives birth identifies as a woman. And so, okay. therefore, maybe fair mother enough. is an exclusionary term. But, like, I don't know. Like, I don't know if there's I a mean, real demand for that. Yeah. Uh, I don't know that there's really demand that makes, for that, but, that like, makes me think, like, probably some folks with maybe too much grad school came up with that. But, perhaps. But, you know. <laughs> Listen, if that's a legitimate call, I mean, like if people really feel excluded by it and that's what they want, uh, it doesn't bother me one bit. Yeah. No, Uh, no harm. So, you know, look, I, I pointed out that just as he's saying that her, uh, saying that birthing people are going to benefit from this, just as he's saying she is virtue signaling, I pointed out that his outrage is performative. And the thing that he is signaling is a veneer of normalcy, of othering this woman who used this word and, and people like her, and and saying that I'm I'm a normal working Alabamian and I stand for family values and for the working man and, and you know, and that kind of thing. And he does that while being on the side of coastal elites who are robbing a Brookwood community blind. And so, look, I, I just pointed out the disconnect. 
And, you know, I mean, I think it's I think that's more relevant. And I think it is near on the order of criminal negligence to have been on the radio for a year and have not mentioned it once. I I searched uh, his, his Twitter for the mention of coal miners. So this isn't even actually related to the strike necessarily. Coal miners, coal miner, uh, UMWA, Warrior Met, Brookwood, all of those terms <laughs> turned up zero results. Well, Jacob, I'm not so sure that the Koch family and uh, whoever <laughs> else may be pulling his strings and patting his pockets would prefer he talk about those things. I mean, good grief. Because, and, and you know, I this... He pisses me off, frankly, Phil Williams, uh, because of the Alabama Policy Institute. They have done a lot of damage in this state. Uh, if you look, editorials and opinion columns for years mm-hmm. have been dominated by the Alabama Policy Institute. And it is a astroturfed think tank funded by oh, yeah. right-wing billionaires. Uh, and unfortunately, folks like that and organizations like that dominate the public narrative in places like Alabama. Mm. Uh, They dominate the news. They dominate the radio airwaves. Uh, And, I mean, I think you've you've hammered on why, you know, what it is that they do. Uh, On one hand, they propose reactionary policies that would make things worse for the majority of people in this state. And when they're not doing that, or sometimes simply as to distract from that, they spend a lot of time and energy and vitriol fighting over stuff like this uh, are trying to get people riled up about something like this. I mean, I know that you don't listen to the radio or like have social media or are on it that much. But I mean, I'm serious, Adam. It was hours, hours and hours of content on the radio. Oh, I, I believe you, because it's like every, people. every week and or two, they come up with a new shtick of something like this. And like you said, it's it's amazing. Mid- and this woman, Dana Hall McLean or something in AL.com, she was talking about it was, this is an affront to mothers. Like, no, I think it was an affront to mothers that we let them die before. Right. I think that is the affront to mothers. That's what I think. Maybe I don't know. Maybe I'm crazy. It's amazing how much they can always redirect conversations about the public and about policy and about politics in general. They always manage to redirect it to these sorts of things, these sorts of topics, whether it's Dr. Seuss or, you know, a phrase like birthing people or the manufactured hysteria around critical race theory. It's it's never ending. Like I'm old enough to remember when they ran over Dixie Chick CDs uh, back in the day, uh, and we were supposed to call French fries Freedom Fries. It's yeah. the same kind of people oh, yeah. doing the same kind of act, uh, but unfortunately, it's a it's a shtick that is been has been very successful. Uh, it's been very successful in them holding power, and it's been very successful in dividing and conquering. The majority, because that's the thing we should never forget, is that the working class is the majority of Alabama and across the country and across this world. We have more in common with each other than we do with these people. These people like Phil Williams and the Koch brothers who fund him. Those aren't those are not our brothers. But 
it's the majority of the people in this state that are our brothers and sisters and, yes, non-binary comrades, uh, to use a gender-neutral term. Yeah. Um those are the, you might make some people cry. I, I know, I know. Um, people's feelings. You know, so I, I am a uh, heterosexual white male uh, father. So I guess you know, in in their realm, I would be a quote unquote normal person. Um, but I'm just going to say right here that I absolutely have nothing but the the most solidarity and respect for all people. Regardless of what their gender identity is, um, you know, transgender, gay, straight, lesbian, whatever, whatever they are, whatever you are, you deserve to be treated with respect and dignity, uh, free from discrimination. And I think that's the common sense position that most of us have, Mm -hmm. frankly. Uh, It's just that we are bombarded with media such as this. That attempts yeah. to get us uh, divided and against uh, attempts to to make us fear people who are different, right? And to blame those people for our problems and to distract us from our real problems and the causes of those mm-hmm. real problems. And he was just appalled that I would point it out, and and he said that the strike in Brookwood, which is affecting over a thousand coal miners and their families directly and at least the whole community indirectly. He said that that is a pet peeve of mine. Um, and then he said that his grandfather was a coal miner and a union man. Well, what so, happened? Yeah, what know. happened between that generation and his? <laughs> um, uh, sometimes the apple does far fall far from the tree. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, in this case. Yeah, if his but, grandfather uh, I, was a good union man, coal miner, and now his grandson... Is a stooge for billionaires. Yeah, that's uh, that's pathetic. I sent him an email and uh, told him that we would be, um, or, or asked him if he'd want to talk to us, uh, and he did not reply. But I mean, to be fair, it was like less than twenty four hours, so you know, I don't always reply to emails in twenty four hours. So maybe we'll have him on the show later. I don't know. We'll see. Um. Let's go ahead and get to Last Week in Southern Labor. Let's do it. Then we'll take another break really quick. Last Week in Southern Labor is a segment every week, almost every week, where we talk about what happened last week in Southern Labor. We pull the information from Jonah Furman's newsletter, Who Gets the Bird, whogetsthebird.substack.com, where he goes over everything that happens in the U.S. labor movement. So uh, let's go ahead and get into it in new organizing. The Starbucks Workers United campaign had another big couple of weeks, and one that really illustrated the geographic diversity, which is a big problem for corporate. That uh, uh, And so they had 837 workers file for elections at 30 stores, including in Austin, Texas, Augusta, Georgia, Knoxville and Murfreesboro, Tennessee, Leesburg and Falls Church, Virginia, Miami Springs, Oviedo, and Hialeah in Florida. Two hundred. Way to go. Yeah, way to go. 280 workers are organizing with the United Steelworkers at International Automotive Components Group in Arlington, Texas. 39 workers at Griffles Blood Bank in Gainesville, Florida, are unionizing with UFCW Local 1625. Seven baristas 
at Three Brothers Coffee in Nashville are joining UFCW Local 1995, joining the wave of coffee workers organizing. That local has seen some interesting action recently, including a failed distillery campaign and an Alabama poultry plant walkout that I haven't been able to get much info about. So if anybody has any connection to that, hit me up. Hit me up. I want to talk to you if you were part of that uh, poultry plant walkout uh, a couple months ago. 18 maintenance workers at the Stennis Space Center in Hancock County, Mississippi, are unionizing with IBEW Local 733. Nine workers for excavation company Badger Daylighting in Fort Pierce, Florida, are unionizing with operating engineers Local 487. Five computer systems analysts at Fort Bliss, Texas, are joining operating engineers Local 351. Four clericals and nurses are at Hospital Castaner in Castaner, Puerto Rico, are joining 1199 SEIU. And ballots were due last week in Bessemer, Alabama, Amazon Union election. Results expected sometime in the next couple of weeks. In election wins and losses, we had 32 freight drivers for Ryder in Southwest Ranches, Florida, vote 17 to 12 to join Teamsters Local 769. The Plumbers Local 72 did not get a single vote out of the eight hardware manufacturing workers for Carlson in Rome, Georgia. Six voted no. SP- FPA uh, lost a big vote. 54 to 78 among 188 child and family protection care specialists in McAllen, Texas. A few dozen healthcare workers with Piedmont Health in North Carolina have become the first group to successfully unionize through Unit, which is a new app that seeks to make forming new independent unions easier. It is venture capital funded and goes against all the no shortcuts hardwire, uh, that is uh, logic hardwired into most organizers' brain. Um, and, uh, like, can they actually even get a decent first contract if they're relying on an app? But, hey, uh, they have now facilitated more new organizing than plenty of local unions, so kudos. We will see how that goes. Uh, in strikes and bargaining... Though the steelworkers came to a tentative agreement with the big oil employers almost a month ago, led by Marathon at the negotiating table, each of the 200 or so bargaining units that cover 30,000 workers has to vote to ratify local agreements before they can take effect. And in Richmond, 500 workers who voted down the agreement will start striking at midnight local time. Uh, last week, so they're on strike right now. There has been very little coverage of the negotiations, but this could be the first shot in a much wider work stoppage, like the one that happened in 2015, only this time it's against the backdrop of high political stakes regarding the domestic oil supply, massive inflation that is primarily uh, dramatized through gas prices, and a generalized increase in pro-worker sentiment. We'll see if this thing spreads beyond Richmond, but I imagine they're not going to be the only of the 200 or so bargaining units across the country to credibly threaten a strike. And Joe, I know that you're listening. If you know some folks involved in these negotiations or in any of the affected locals, that might be a good guest to have on the show. So uh, you might want to connect me with them. Around 350 non-tenure-track faculty and adjuncts with SEIU Local 500 at Howard University say uh, they said 
that they are ready to strike if a deal isn't reached by Monday. And the administration caved. The strike was averted and the workers' demands were met. So that is good news. Uh, BNSF and Norfolk Southern, two of the Class 1 railroads uh, that carry freight across the country, have filed for federal mediation over negotiations with International Association of Sheet Metal, Air, Rail, and Transportation Workers over crew sizes. The MLBPA voted to accept an agreement to end the lockout that had begun to threaten big chunks of the baseball season. Interestingly, the executive board apparently voted against the uh, the settlement, but a supermajority of the team's votes uh, were to accept it, so it passed. In political fights, a columnist at the Federal News Network says Veterans Affairs labor relations with AFGE is about to descend into a tooth-and-nail cage fight as the agency makes noises towards closing a number of VA hospitals and other changes under the Biden administration. What is that about? So you can bet we're going to be talking to some people about uh, from AFGE about this. I mean, that is lunacy. A second top officer of the UAW, Cindy Estrada, she is the Stellantis VP, has announced that she will not be seeking re-election. You'll recall that Terry Dittis, her counterpart who handles GM negotiations, made a similar announcement last month. The top two officers of Machinists District Lodge 142, which is based in Missouri but represents airline workers across the country, are asking a federal judge to lift the trusteeship imposed by the National Machinists Leadership and President Robert Martinez. A years-long audit apparently triggered the trusteeship, but it's worth noting one of the two top officers recently challenged Martinez's running mate in the national union elections last year. So we'll keep an eye on that as well. Um, we have been uh, we've been talking about some priorities among conservative weirdos and last week in Southern Labor. So if uh, uh, if you missed any of that, don't worry. We've got a podcast and you can find us on YouTube all at the Valley Labor Report. Um, yeah. So we're going to take a really quick break. And uh, when we come back. We're going to be talking about some other stuff. So make sure that you stay tuned. You're listening to the Valley Labor Report. Energy Alabama supports consumers and is a leader in advocating for them. They have been able to successfully fight off utility rate increases in the state, reduce fees for electric vehicles, increase electric vehicle infrastructure spending, and they secured a $100 million refund by Alabama Power after the utility overcharged customers for fuel. To learn more about their work advocating for customers and to join the fight, go to energyalabama.org. There's a lot of talk about a shortage of workers, but that's not the case with IBW558. We have provided our customers over 3,000 workers and performed over 3 million man hours in a pandemic year. With 8,000 OJT hours, 900 classroom hours, OSHA 30, and a state license, our members receive the equivalent of a master's degree. That's what makes IBW558 the right choice for your electrical needs. Look us up at Facebook or at IBW558.org. 
The attorneys of Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs are proud to represent working people in Alabama and across the Southeast. They have over 100 years of experience representing injured workers in workers' compensation, personal injury, and disability claims. Let their attorneys help you when you get injured on the job. You can find them at www.mtandj.com or 855 617 9333. Let Maples, Tucker, and Jacobs help you when you get injured on the job. Again, the website is www.mtandj.com or the phone number 855 617 9333. No representation is made that the quality of legal services is greater than the quality of legal services from other law firms. North Alabama DSA is looking for folks to work for a better North Alabama. They prioritize mutual aid, municipal activism, and union solidarity. Contact them on social media or dsanorthalabama at gmail for more information. Support for this program is provided by the International Association for Machinists and Aerospace Workers, Local Lodge 44 in Decatur, Alabama. Learn more at IAMAW44.org. Hometown Action is a proud sponsor of the Valley Labor Report, and we are here to help keep you in the loop on the assault on your right to protest, picket, and peaceably assemble in Alabama. The anti-protest bill is back this year, and it's as bad as ever. There is huge interest in building worker power and increasing unionization in Alabama that has corporations scared. Don't let their influence on our state legislators become another tool to arrest striking workers and union supporters. This racist bill is especially problematic for black organizers and unnecessarily gives law enforcement broad discretion to define even small peaceful gatherings as a riot. Tell your Alabama legislators to say no to House Bill 2. We've set up an easy way for you to do that. You can go to hmtn.link slash hb2 where you'll find more information and an email template you can use right from your smartphone. That link is hmtn.link slash hb2. You'll also find more info on social media at Hometown Action. We're the nurses, firefighters, and claims representatives that help keep our government services running. We respond to natural disasters. We care for our nation's veterans. And we investigate discrimination in the workplace. We are federal and D.C. government workers. And we are proud to serve the American people. Working in more than 70 agencies across the government, we know we can fulfill our mission because our union has our back. Learn more at AFGE.org. O-R-G. Paid for by the American Federation of Government Employees, AFL-CIO. Support for this program also comes from the Mid-South Council of Retail, Wholesale, and Department Store Union. Learn more at rwdsu.info. Come all you poor workers, good news to you, I'll tell how the good old union has come in here to dwell. Alabama's only Union Talk Radio Show. This is the Valley Labor Report. My name is Jacob Morrison, and my co-host is Adam Keller. If you've got anything to add, give us a call. Our phone line is always open for voicemails. We're pre-taping this episode, so you can't get mad at us in real time. We're not listening. 
but we might listen next week. So give us your voicemails. Give us your voicemails, and we'll play it on the show next week. I promise. The phone number is 844-899-8857. And if you listen to the program as a podcast, you're always listening to us a little bit delayed. So feel free to send us a voicemail for sure. So, uh, last week, Donald Trump rescinded his endorsement of Mo Brooks, leaving working folks in Alabama to choose in the Republican primary between the former president of the Council of Bosses, who was just endorsed by a different Council of Bosses that was founded specifically to fight construction workers, and another boss who has public... who. Uh, publicly accused his sister of lying about years of sexual abuse at the hands of their father, despite telling his sister in letters that their father had admitted to the abuse. These are a great bunch of folks. No problem here. I don't see any. I don't see a problem. A couple real winners we got to choose from here. Yes. Um, This is great. mm. No other comments. I got to say... (laughs) <laughs> when I heard the news about Mo Brooks, it was hilarious. Oh, man. Couldn't have happened to a better person. He's a real sicko. <laughs> just a real, real sicko. You can see it in his eyes. I mean, I hate to get personal with it, but he just truly. Um, oh, yeah. A, a, a disturbing, perhaps demonic kind of person. And uh, to see his boy Trump turn his back on him. Make him look foolish. He even called him woke, apparently, uh, which is Welcome hilarious. Welcome to the club, baby. Yeah. <laughs> well, Time to wake up, Mo. The water's warm. The water's warm. Come on. Come inside. Come on, Mo. I mean, if you're already being called woke, you might as well like read some books well, and yeah. uh, see what the world's really like outside of your twisted, twisted ideology uh, uh, or whatever it is that you really believe, because, I mean, who the hell knows, but... I actually think Mo is a true believer, though. Uh, yeah, I do too. Um, what was that tweet? Woman who voted for leopards eating people's faces party surprised that leopards ate her face. Yeah, uh, you know, I actually went to school with Mo Brooks as one of his sons, and uh, uh, yeah, I, I would have never. It, it just it still boggles my mind. Um, I, he's a he, yeah, truly a disturbing individual. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it, it's just so funny. It's just so it's funny that so this funny. guy, this guy got involved he, with the, the insurrection attempt. Oh, my God. I mean, he, he was there. He was there. He was wearing his it's, vest and everything, all dressed up, suited man. for battle. Um, it's so, so funny. And he's the one who gets thrown under the bus. I mean, you're not going to find someone in Congress. <laughs> As like ideological as Mo, I think he's pretty much right there on the extreme edge of the right wing faction there. And the funny thing is, is, is like it's, I mean, obviously it's not like there's not a substantive disagreement here. Like they oh, are, no. they either both pretend that they believe or they both actually believe that the election was stolen, and 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 um. And, and, and so the disagreement was only on a matter of tactics. Trump thought that uh, we should overthrow our 
uh, you know, constitutional republic. And Mo thought that they should win the next election and then do it. So, <laughs> I mean, it's just it's just so funny. It's so, so funny. And the real story here is the polling numbers. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Maga Mo started dropping and, ca- uh, you know, his whole campaign started to crater into third place. You know, that's that's where it really took off. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which was very surprising to me. I did not anticipate I think more people his... got to know him, and that's... I don't know. I think it was just that, like, as the other people got their names out more, yeah. Mo just kind of yeah, faded back, because he didn't run any ads or Yeah, anything. I think... I don't know. I think it was a heavily inflated first place to yeah. begin with. I, I think he was first place by default. So, yeah, yep. you're right, as, as the other candidates really got in the game and... You know, like yeah. I said, in my opinion, I think more people probably got to see a little bit from Mo, because um, at the end of the day, all three of the major candidates are saying the same stuff. Mm-hmm. They're they're you know their commercials uh, and their campaigns are they're all yeah. roughly the same. It's just kind of what personality do you want to carry that forward? Yeah, uh, and who do you think? Uh, you know, the big thing in this area is who do you think can bring home the bacon in federal right. dollars? And that is certainly not Mo. Right? Yeah, he's he's proven that. Yeah. And um, you know, and yes, the irony of people who rail about how much they hate the federal government, whose Being entire totally economy is dependent. De- yes, on the absolutely. Government. Without the federal government, Alabama would be even more of a. Uh, yeah. developing uh region um and of course Huntsville Alabama would be nothing without yeah. the federal government on the other hand Will Boyd is a preacher running unopposed in the democratic primary i've i've gotten to meet will a few times i've heard him speak he's a very eloquent speaker um i think he seems very nice yeah seems like he, a nice uh, dude um he has not been endorsed by a council of bosses that was founded specifically for the purpose of fighting construction workers and uh he did not attack his sister who um he knew to be telling the truth about their father's sexual assault claims. Talk about another sicko. Yeah, that is bonkers. That is bonkers. Um, so, in other news, teacher morale is low, uh, says the president of the Jefferson County American Federation of Teachers, Marianne Hayward. Um, she says... I don't think things have gotten any better over this year. Any teacher who has uh, who was kind of thinking about it last year and just thought, well, I'll just do it one more year, I don't think they're going to stay for another year. So uh, why do you think that is, Adam? Well, I think the pandemic only exposed and exacerbated existing problems and existing issues inside our schools. Um, so I think that... I think that's probably a big part of it is the just the exhaustion, really, uh, because the pandemic has been exhausting for educators. I know uh, you wouldn't really get that from the media, especially national media has talked about uh, remote learning and remote learning has has not been the common experience here in Alabama. Uh, there was the brief period, you know, March of 2020 in the end of that school year. But out, outside of that, most of our school districts returned 
in person pretty quickly. Um, you know, throughout this school year. In fact, a lot of them didn't even have any sort of real protocols uh, that would lead you to believe it was any different than, you know, 2019 school year. But uh, the absences just compound work and workload. Uh, Of course, I'm talking about the teachers who are absent because they're in quarantine uh, or because they actually have COVID and are dealing with the effects of that. But then you have a massive amount of student absences. And, you know, for those of you who've never been a classroom teacher, you know, you have to think about how much extra that adds to your plate because you have to keep up with, you know, little Johnny and little Jane who was out. What days were they out? Uh, What kind of makeup work can you send to them? How are you going to get them to make it work? Is the makeup work going to be similar or the same to what you did in the classroom? Because there's a good chance it's, you know, it may not translate. Um, and then you may have students who are taking the class online or remotely uh, at the same time as you're teaching in person. And so now you've got a whole nother set of students and lessons and grades to keep up with. And, you know, and that's kind of getting in the weeds of it. And I think, you know, maybe big picture wise, that's not even close to the top, but in terms of maybe why this year is a breaking point for some folks, I think that's probably it. Um, I mean, it's set in a context of where, obviously, there's a lot of stress in this country among workers of all types. People are stressed. People have lost loved ones. That's another thing that we forget in terms of this pandemic, how many people have lost people. Um, that includes teachers, that includes teachers' families, and, and even students in some cases. And that's that's all incredibly heavy to take on. And something that I know we've talked a little bit about on the show before is just how teachers are and educators more broadly are expected to set, solve really all the problems in our society. Uh, and they are sort of in a triage situation. And these kids come to them, you know, and it's all kids. Uh, Public schools accept all kids. Now, public schools have their issues, but at the end of the day, any child, regardless of who they are, where they come from, what language they speak, how much money they have, they can get admitted to a public school. And they're going to be, you know, given some opportunities and there's going to be educators there who are going to do their best to try to meet their needs wherever they are. And, you know, one of the big things that I know I've heard from educators is just mental health and how, you know, a lot of folks have just really, they've been struggling um, between the pandemic and then just, like I mentioned, the sort of exacerbated existing issues. And that could be on a personal and family level. And, of course, we know it, you know, on a more systemic level. And so educators are, are dealing with their own mental health struggles while at the same time now they have students and their families who are having increased mental health issues. Right. And so, you know, there's there's some concerning statistics regarding suicides among young people. Um, we know that, of course, drug addiction is still a major issue that plagues so many of our communities. So those all just take a toll because, you know, educators 
are having to wear so many hats, and just because you're great at teaching folks how to write a research paper or you're great at, in the chemistry lab, doesn't mean that you're necessarily equipped to be a mental health professional. Um, and I know our schools have counselors, but if you haven't been in a school in a while, I can tell you that counselors aren't doing much counseling. They're doing paperwork. They're setting schedules. They're doing testing and testing and then preparing for the testing and then doing more testing. Uh, so they don't really actually have a lot of time to sit down and counsel with students and hear about their issues and, you know, point them in the right direction, plug them into resources. That doesn't happen nearly enough. So, I, I mean, I think all those things compound. Uh, and in Alabama, as you know, we've talked about this before, we've had about 15 years of corporate education reform and privatization. Uh, and in the early part of that, some really deep austerity. So I know all the legislators are going to be bragging about this record budget of the Education Trust Fund, which, don't get me wrong, that's great. That's uh, We'd rather see it go up than go down, <laughs> believe me. But what's left out of that is the mention of the really, really steep cuts in the aftermath of the Great Recession. I believe the first five years or so, it, uh, Alabama had the second highest cuts in the country. And, of course, you have inflation. So between the two, a lot of these budget increases and teacher salary increases are really just making up for lost ground. Right. Uh, uh, I mean, not even. I so, yeah. Uh, so I, I think, you know, and educators are like all workers are looking around and looking around at their options. You know, the great resignation is happening across industries and uh, we know that in Alabama and across the country, educators are paid less than similarly educated professionals. Right. Uh, you have to go and you have to have at least a bachelor's degree. You have to pass a certification process. You have to maintain the certification. And if you are jumping through all those hoops and getting all that education in other career fields and in other industries, you're typically going to get paid a lot more usually with a lot better working conditions. You can actually go to the bathroom when you need to. You can go have lunch with adults. Uh, you can do any a number of things that a lot of folks take for granted. So I think I think all those things are, are just kind of circulating. Yeah. So the answer is we should privatize the schools. I'm glad you agree. <clears throat> glad you agree, Adam. Um, all right, Phil so- Williams. <laughs> all right. All right. Um. As we're wrapping up here on the radio, let's do a few plugs. Uh, you can leave us a voicemail, 844-899-TVLR. That is 844-899-8857. We've got a hat. We already placed uh, We already placed the order, but we did order several extra. So you can get yours on our website, tvlr.fm, and you can uh, give us money at the same place. You can give us money by... Um, making a monthly donation or a one-time donation at tvlr.fm. So, folks, that is it for us on the radio. But if you find us online, you can continue listening for overtime. We are talking to Connor Lewis about strategies for effective unionism. Adam is going to be giving us a sports labor roundup. We're going to be talking about woke anti-worker tweets and some more. So you don't want to miss it. All power to the workers.
You'll find overtime in your podcast feed on Thursday.